in your Bibles this evening to Matthew. <clears throat> Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, we're going to read verses 39 through 44, 39 through 44. If you would please stand with me. The setting for this passage is Golgotha, the place of a skull. Jesus has been hung on the cross, and there's a sign over his head. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. <clears throat> so we take up verse 39. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads. And saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priest mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him come, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. Amen. <clears throat> Holy Father, we thank thee for thy goodness. We thank thee for the glorious truths set before us in this passage. And Father, we thank thee for the various gospels that fill in many of the blanks. But I pray thou wouldst speak to us tonight with power, with clarity, with the glorious light from above that scatters the darkness of the lost and draws them into the kingdom of light and that fills the hearts of thy people with joy and adoration. Oh, please come and grant us thy grace. And I pray it all in the name of Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Our text leads us to a heart-rending scene. Jesus hangs on a cross in the place of a skull. 
Above his head hangs a sign meant to mock him as well as the Jews who wanted him crucified. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. The Jews did not believe it. The Romans did not believe it. Few did. But the sign testified in three languages that the bloody body hanging on nails was royalty. Jesus was racked with blinding pain in every part of his body. But that was not enough for the murderous, hate-filled crowds. Passover pilgrims, chief priests, scribes, elders, Roman soldiers all mocked him with satanic delight. In fact, the members of the Sanhedrin that were present had charged Jesus with blasphemy, but their blinded minds could not grasp the fact that they were the blasphemers. Now, before Jesus began his divine ministry, he was in the wilderness fasting 40 days and nights. Satan saw Jesus in a state of weakness and tempted him. If thou be the Son of God, if thou be the Son of God, although our present text does not mention Satan, his presence is obvious. As prophets speak God's words to men, the wretched crowd before Christ in his agony were speaking the words of Satan. It is clear that the devil now uses the very same tactic to tempt Jesus in his greatest weakness. But Jesus had already won the battle. He'd already won the victory in prayer at the Garden of Gethsemane. While he looked like a loser, he was the conqueror. He was the victor. As the scriptures say, the ways of God are past finding out. Jesus knew that he had the power to come down from the cross. And our great high priest remained on the altar of the cross, offering himself as the sacrifice for the sins of his people. You, Nevertheless, one more wave of mockery would afflict Jesus in his agony. It fell from the lips of the two thieves crucified on either side of him. Their cruel, sneering ridicule was the most ironic of all. Our message is entitled, A King Revealed, A Thief Converted. Now may our loving Heavenly Father open the eyes of our understanding and shed abroad His love in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Amen. And may our love for Christ 
rise up in praise and adoration now and forever. So consider first, Jesus was crucified between two thieves who mocked him. It's very difficult for us to go back 2,000 years and, and grasp the scene as it was. What a dark scene is painted in the gospel accounts. The Jews expected the messianic king of Israel to sit enthroned in regal splendor. They awaited his conquering and governing Israel's enemies. Now the words of God's prophets had given them great hope. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father. Now for that reason, James and John wanted to sit, one on the right hand and the other on the left. They had squabbled about that on the way to Jerusalem. They wanted to be on either side of him when he took the throne of the kingdom. But there is no throne. There is no might. There is no majesty. And there is no dominion at the place of the skull. James and John were not squabbling about being on the right hand and the left at this moment. But there were two men, one on each side. Low lives, common criminals. But not one moment, word or deed of this horror was accidental. None of it was out of control. None of it was a mistake. It was all under the sovereign rule of God in the outworking of God's eternal purpose of salvation. The Jews believed that a false Messiah was rightfully dying. And they were pleased. The Romans thought Another common criminal was dying. They didn't have a dog in the fight, so to speak. But no one at the skull but Jesus understood that at the heart of that scene, the high priest was putting away sin by the sacrifice of himself. God's eternal purpose of redemption was unfolding before the eyes of the Jews, the Gentiles, and the Romans as Jesus suffered in unspeakable anguish. So they blindly mocked him. The word of God prophesied that Jesus would be numbered with criminals. And so the word of God 
comes before our eyes in the reality of Christ and the two thieves. The prophet Isaiah portrays a suffering servant in chapter 53 of this prophecy. God honors that servant because he hath poured out his soul unto death. That prophecy points directly to Jesus' dreadful death as the high priest at Golgotha. The suffering servant is the one who pours out his life as the priest and as the sacrifice. That truth, brethren, that truth must be stamped upon our souls. Jesus made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That is the life lived before us in the gospel, and that is the death spoken of in these passages. Jesus gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this evil world. Salvation in the mind of of a lot of folks today is not being delivered from this world, but living like the world, grasping for the world, and still having a hope of heaven. This is not biblical Christianity. We are to take up our crosses to follow him. And as his was a path of death, ours will be too. We may not die the kind of agonizing death that Christ did. We might. We're certainly closer to that kind of thing today and in this nation than ever before. But however we seal our testimony, it will be with our lives or we have nothing with which to seal it. Talk doesn't get it. The mockers at the cross could not understand what was happening. They did not understand what was happening. The Pharisees were as delighted as they could be. They had twisted Pilate's arm until they got the crucifixion that they wanted. They were happy about this bloody and gory scene. They took delight in mocking the Savior. Isaiah goes on to say, he was numbered with the transgressors. Now, at the heart of the Hebrew word translated transgressors, the idea of rebels. Rebels. Rebels who cast off the law of God to pursue their own way. You must understand. I don't don't know that all of us here do. I know some of you do. Do your own thing. Is Satan's doctrine. That was the cry of the 60s. The 60s were a satanic occult age. And we're eating the fruit of it now. It is doing what God commands. It brings him glory. 
that honors him. But rebels want their own way. Rebels are those who cast off the law of God. Now previously Jesus had told his disciples, I say unto you, that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors. For the things concerning me have an end. And so we see that clearly in the place of the skull. By his sacrificial death among the rebels, Jesus identified himself with sinners. Did we not understand that? He purposefully hung with the sinners. Because he was in sinner's place. There was no throne for him at that time. Just the instrument of his death. A dreadful cross. Bloody spikes. Jesus began his ministry identifying with sinners in his baptism. And now at Golgotha, he identifies with them hanging between two rebels. And why these thieves? Why thieves? Because they are perfect symbols for you and me. Because they're perfect symbols for all sinners. We rob God of his glory. Our pride takes credit for his work. Our pride takes credit for our beauty, our abilities, our education, our intelligence. We rob God of his glory by worshiping according to our will instead of his will. We rob God of his glory when we misuse his day of worship. We rob, glory, rob, we rob God of his glory when we do not pray, when we do not study his word, when we do not meditate upon his truths and fill ourselves with the filth of this world. We rob God of his glory when we waste our time and steal the time of others. Now we could go on. But we all are thieves. Everyone here. And in God's amazing grace, Christ was crucified between two thieves as a low-life criminal. Isaiah's text goes on to say, He bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. What stunning accuracy appears in this spirit-inspired prophecy. Jesus, the high priest, offered himself on the cross, suffered and bled and died, bearing all the sins of all his people for all eternity. And he interceded for those who crucified him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So with the eyes of faith, let us gaze at Jesus 
hanging between two thieves. This might be what some have referred to as sanctified imagination. He was scourged as they were. He bled like they bled. He was nailed to a cross as they were. But did they sympathize with him? Sometimes when people are suffering, they can all groan together and for each other. But that didn't happen at the cross. Both thieves spewed their venomous sarcasm and ridicule on Jesus. The text says, The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. Which means both thieves mocked Jesus in the same way as the spectators, the Sanhedrin, and the soldiers. Mark's gospel puts it this way. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. To revile means to speak against someone in such a way as to harm or injure their reputation. So the thieves verbally assaulted Jesus to degrade him, to cut him down to size. Ha <laughs> ha! Oh, look! King of the Jews! It's mockery of the highest sort. Mockery. They questioned whether Jesus was the Son of God, as Satan did, and challenged him to prove it, as Satan did. But in Jesus' love for us, he voluntarily remained nailed to the cross. It's pure voluntary. No one made him do it. It's one of the reasons he knocked all the soldiers down in the garden. Nobody takes me. I'll go with you. What superb examples these crucified men were as they hurled insults at him. Perfect examples of human depravity. But before the Lord saved any of us, our lives mocked God. Our lives were of the same drive of the thieves, whether we ever did what they did or no. We were just as deserving of hell. But one brief brutal sarcasm was like that of all the mockers there. One of the malefactors, says the text, which were hanged, railed on him. I want us to get this. This is not a group of people standing around and just yelling or insulting one another. These are men that are dying. Dying. A horrible, torturous death. They weren't comfortable. Everything in them was aching, screaming. Pain. The bodies were shaking and quivering because of the way they were nailed to the cross. And yet, in their strange dance upon the cross, they're mocking Jesus. Two dying men mock a dying man. How wicked is that? 
He railed on him. If thou be Christ. Oh, he was simply the puppet for the ventriloquist Satan. If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. Now the word malefactor means a criminal, an evildoer. And once again, his words reveal the satanic method. The devil's doctrine. If thou be Christ. If thou be Christ. The foulest words you could speak. We think some four-letter words are the worst and most terrible things we can hear. No, blasphemy of your Savior is the worst thing you can ever hear. Get serious about that. Christians everywhere, at least professing Christians, they don't mind taking the Lord's money, going in and watching a film. They'll say, oh, they don't mind anything bad about it, except they, you know, all you need to do is ask them, did they, did they take your Savior's name in vain? The one who loved you before the foundation of the world, the one who came into this cesspool to keep the laws that you've never kept, the one who died upon Calvary, Calvary's cross and rose again for your salvation. It's okay to pay money to hear someone take his name in vain. But we'll recoil if somebody uses a four-letter word. That's pathetic, brethren. That's terrible. If thou be Christ. For three and a half years he proved that he was. Jesus proved his identity over and again. Matthew's gospel shows repeatedly that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures. But the Jews did not understand it, nor believe it. Oh, my brethren, there's no sweeter name than Jesus. Nothing more lovely than the thought of him. I trust that you are grieved when someone takes his name in vain. Or speaks lowly of that glorious person. He's worthy of our most intense love. Our most intense living. That we be like a tender box. And the match of his love falls in. And we kindle and ignite in a flame of love in the way we live for him. Well, as we go back to this dreadful scene, the mental barrage from the thieves doesn't let up. If you are the son of God, if you are the Christ, if you are the king of Israel, do something. How did that sound? To Christ's holy ears. He'd done something for three and a half years. <laughs> Healed the sick. Raised the dead. 
as the book of Acts tells us, he was filled with the Spirit and went about doing good. He did something. They didn't have the eyes to see it, nor the ears to hear it, nor the heart to believe it. But Jesus did not return the thieves' mockery. Someone who I prayed with recently is struggling with cancer. He said, please pray for me. When I'm feeling so bad, it's difficult to keep my patience with the children, with my spouse, etc. <clears throat> what was it like for Jesus to know the wrath and outrage of God upon his body and his soul and have two lowlifes spewing out their toxic insults and he didn't return it Peter would later write of Jesus who when he was reviled reviled not again when he suffered he threatened not but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously Jesus knew himself to be the Christ, the son of the living God. He knew that he was king of the Jews. Yet he did not reply to one of his own creatures blaspheming him. Our Savior was, again, the perfect model of his own teaching. Resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. However, thirdly, the other thief had a startling change of mind about Jesus. God's word now displays something miraculous. Amid the darkest hours of the wickedest acts on earth, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth manifests his incredible saving grace. It would be difficult for us to imagine a darker scene. And yet, of all places, the place of the skull becomes a place of life. The second thief rebuked the first. Both had been scourged, both were nailed to a cross. Both thieves had mocked Jesus. But now we, re we receive a stunning lesson in what true repentance looks like. In, in an unusual way, the second thief becomes our instructor. He teaches us some things about genuine repentance. The text says, the other, answering, rebuked him. Him there is the first thief. The second thief rebukes the first thief. Well, they were in harmony. Vomiting out their hatred toward Jesus. All of a sudden, 
there's a division. And a good one. The other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God? Now, some of us would say, Well, this looks like some really serious hypocrisy, right? He's, he's casting these, Oh, prove yourself to be the Lord. Prove yourself to be the King. Prove yourself to be the Messiah. And all of a sudden, he's rebuking the other man for the same thing he'd been doing. Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? Both thieves were likely Jews, considering how freely this man speaks of God and justice. He's actually talking about justice. He had been hatefully mocking Christ. Now he rebukes the first thief for doing so. His heart had been so hard that he railed on an innocent man, even though they were suffering the same horrifying death. Now, what does that mean? The second thief had come to fear God. Something so gripped him that he realized the black and dreadful sin that he'd been committing. The second thief realized that what he was doing was against God. Oh, what was he doing? He was mocking a dying man. We get it? <laughs> he wasn't holding somebody up. He wasn't in the act of murdering someone. He was doing something the world probably took very little notice of as far as a serious offense. But he had been blaspheming the king of kings. How did he know that? Well, there was something hanging over Jesus' head. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Most likely, the first gospel tract. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And the man they'd been mocking was acting differently than they. He didn't bite back. He didn't swear back at them. He didn't give them any joy in their mocking him. Something got a hold of this man's heart. Listen to him once again. He says, we receive the due reward of our deeds... He's not sitting in a jail for 90 days. He's dying. He's dying. And he says, we deserve this. And he says, we. He doesn't say, you over there, you deserve this, but I'm kind of getting better over here. He said, no, this is what we deserve. He came to an understanding that he had sinned against God. In what he was doing. Don't you fear God? That's an astonishing admission of guilt. We receive due reward. This had come to his senses. 
He had come to his senses. He understood that he and the other thief had broken man's law. And even worse, God's law. And that they were mocking an innocent man. This is a truly breathtaking example of God's grace penetrating a hardened and sinful heart. And he does it all the time. He can come to the darkest scene. He can come to the most wicked acts. He can come to the foulest violators of his law and open their hearts and make them know what they are. That's what he does, isn't it? He didn't go to nice people and say, would you like to follow me? He goes to people that deserve to burn in hell, regardless of who they are. Fine, upstanding citizens or the, the, the pervert stealing children. Oh, my friends, you should stare at this scene with the eye of faith and think about it perhaps even regularly. Are you better than the thief? What a scene. Three dying, squirming men in agony. Two of them mocking, and all of a sudden another, one, one of those thieves begins to defend Jesus. He defends him. This man hath done nothing amiss. He's done nothing wrong. He exalts Christ and he debases himself. Wait a minute. That's what happens in real salvation. That's what happens when God truly converts. That's what happens when he opens a heart and shows a sinner how sinful he or she is. He exalts Christ and debases himself. Now, what is that but the amazing grace of God? What what else could it possibly be? It is grace beyond our comprehension. All of our parents would be saying to their children, don't you hang out with men like these thieves. You see the way things end up with them. See that? See where it goes? And yet one of them is suddenly looking at Christ and believing him. That happened to you if you're converted. At some moment, your life of rebellion against God became different. You woke up. You understood. I'm swimming in a cesspool. Call my heart. When the Lord shows you what you are, it's not pretty. But when he shows you who his son is, your heart rises up toward that beauty just like a moth toward a flame. Because he's worthy. You want him. Here's a man now dying and somehow longing 
with a man dying next to him. Look at him. He's innocent. He then asked Jesus to remember him. He said unto the Lord Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Those are some of the most astounding words in the New Testament. From one spitting out venom toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And then all of a sudden addressing him as Lord. Now the word Lord was used in those days. One of the uses of it was very similar to when we say sir to someone. It is a title of respect. Yes, sir. Or no, ma'am. We use those as titles. And very often when someone uses the word Lord in the New Testament, they're using it in that way. But that's not the way the man's using it. Because he says, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. He's saying, oh, gracious king, remember me. Remember me. The heart that's been opened desires to be with Jesus. Remember when the Lord cast the demons out of the man. The Lord goes to get in the boat and take off. The, the demoniac follows him out into the water. He said he wanted to be with Jesus. That's just exactly the way saved heart works. It's like all of a sudden, Jesus is the fire, and we now have a built-in homing device. We want him. Our heart gets to him, wants him, desires him. Oh, our heart should rise into heaven in praise, in adoration, and worship of God's grace. When we see this man saying, Lord, just remember me when you come into your kingdom. He didn't even say, I'm so filthy. I'm not even worthy of your pardon. He said, would you just remember me? And the Lord astounds him. (laughs) Having magnified the righteousness of God by rebuking the other thief and having acknowledged and confessed his own wickedness before God, that bleeding, dying man... (laughs) Admits that Jesus is the king. He admits that he's the king. Do you see it, brethren? Do you see this? Do you hear it? Do you understand that the thief believes the sign over Jesus' head? Pilate put it up there to mock. The thief has come to the realization that that bloody hulk is a king. That's only the miracle of grace. How did that happen? How did someone so hard-hearted radically change like that? Well, it was the same thing that happened to Peter who said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed it unto thee. On that cross, it was revealed to that thief. And if you know the Lord, the Lord in his mercy to you pointed to him. 
and said, there's the king. He's the king. Now, while all the world seemed to be against Jesus at that moment, while his enemies mercilessly and viciously mocked him, while both thieves heartlessly had done the same, the glory and the beauty of God's shining, saving grace pierces that darkness. People are standing around, hundreds, maybe thousands of them. They're seeing these bodies in agony upon the cross. They're spitting at him. They are mocking. They're wagging their heads at him. And Jesus is fellowshipping with one of them with whom he's about to die. Is that not astounding? I mean, is that not astounding? God saves sinners. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And if there's ever a passage in the scripture that shows the glorious sovereignty of God, the predestinating grace of God, one sinner went on in his hatefulness. The other one was saying, remember me. It wasn't because someone hawked him long enough and said, you need to, man, you just make a decision. Just make a decision for Jesus. Just let him do something. God came and opened a rebel's heart. And he loves to do it. We might even have some rebels here tonight. Jesus saved folk just like you. Because he saved folk just like us. Oh, friends, Jesus was beaten, swollen, scourged, crowned with thorns, nailed to a cross in accord with Isaiah's prophecy. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. He was not recognizable. He'd been so beaten. Oh, I roomed with a man for several years. He used to like to get up early in the morning and go running. And one morning he didn't come back. <clears throat> Police came to my apartment and it took me to identify him. And I walked in. He was still alive. But he was so swollen out of shape, I didn't know him. But I recognized his hair and his hands. We were both musicians, and I recognized his hands. It was worse with Christ. Someone had taken this man and just beaten him. And the body swells up. It's horrific. This is the idea. It's not some Hollywood actor with a few painted on scratches. This was a man that astonished people by how deformed he looked. Now, why am I saying this? Why am I telling you this? Because Jesus did not look like a king. He did not look like a king. 
But the second thief saw him as the king and asked for his mercies. When the thief saw what he was, he said, remember me. Remember me. When you see what you are, you're not in any kind of place to tell God what you want. The man just said, remember me. And the Lord stunned him. Amid the horrors of all this suffering, Jesus made an astonishing promise. He could have said, don't you see that I'm dying? He said, I'll tell you the truth. Today thou wilt be with me in paradise. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. There on the cross, in the sorrow, in the grief, in the shame, Jesus was building his church. Did he start with a nice rich man? He started with a thief. That's the kind of building material Jesus loves. He loves to take the fool. He loves to take the thief. He loves to take people of the grossest and the most foul sins. And give them new hearts. So while Jesus. Looks like he's lost everything. And his ministry is a failure. Here's the first building stone. In his congregation. One tortured bleeding crucified man promising a dying criminal that they'll both be in paradise that day. Do you get that scene? You wonder if anybody standing around actually heard that and were thinking, this is the craziest stuff I've ever heard. And yet, it was the realest thing that was taking place. God saved sinners. That's the only kind of people he saves. As John Gill said, Jesus promised him more than he asked for and sooner than he expected. A man with a life stained from his birth with sin has them all washed away by the bloody body hanging next to him. In the blackest hour of human suffering, a low-life criminal dying in horrific torment was transformed from a blasphemer of the king to a citizen of his kingdom. That's, that is the grace of our God.
This man went from being a child of the devil and mouthing satanic words to praising and trusting Jesus Christ. So, my brethren, who could possibly have imagined that a common criminal would become a world-class teacher on repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus? That he could show us what repentance sounds like to go from this and my filthy mouth to a mouth that says, oh, Lord, remember me? Lord, remember me. Who could imagine it? Not the lost. Not the Romans. Not the Jews. Not the others that were there for the Passover. But my dear friend, Jesus is still saving like that today. Whoever you are, whatever your sins, look to him. He saves the foulest. Three quick things. One, the thief teaches us that the lowest sinners are not out of reach of God's amazing grace. But a brief warning comes with it. That grace is set before you. Don't reject it. Don't turn from it. Secondly, the thief teaches us that true conversion is always accompanied by spirit-wrought repentance. I deserve what I've gotten from my sins. But that man is innocent. He saw it, and he repented of his sins. He confessed Jesus as innocent and himself as worthy of death. And thirdly, that thief teaches us to own what we really are and to bow to Christ's lordship. So this incredible scene of Christ suffering gives us incredible hope in God's great grace. There is hope for the foulest. Here we see the king revealed and the thief converted. What a story in such a dark hour. May our hearts rise up and praise the Lord. Amen. Oh, Jesus, how we love thee, how we thank thee for loving us. We would have gone on living in our hard-heartedness, even sitting in a church, even singing hymns, even being self-righteous about social issues. But, oh, God, when we see what we are, our hearts hope, remember me, And the Lord says today, thou will be with me in paradise. Oh, Father, we thank thee for that great salvation. For those who do not know thee here, oh, speak. 
the sign above thy head, O Christ, was true. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. May every unbeliever who hears this flee to the King. And, O Lord, may our hearts go out in selfless love to thee. May we take up our crosses and follow hard after thee. And may we rejoice in thy love for us. We pray it all in the name of Christ. Amen.